Welcome to the Sales Lead Dog Podcast, hosted by CRM technology and sales process expert, Christopher Smith, talking with sales leaders that have separated themselves from the rest of the pack. Listen to find out how the best of the best achieve success with their team and CRM technology. And remember, unless you are the lead dog, the view never changes. Welcome to Sales Lead Dog. We have a guest I am super, super excited about to have on the show today. Uh, David Meerman Scott, the very well-known speaker, author, best-selling author. Um, welcome to Sales Lead Dog, David. It's great to be here and being some lead dog stuff we're going to talk about. <laughs> I'm looking, looking forward to it. Yeah. Welcome to the pack. Um, <laughs> there we go. Yeah. I am just uh, really excited to have you on here for a couple of reasons. Um, one, uh, and I think this is, uh, we're going to dive into the, uh, deeply into this on, on this episode, but you have an incredible background in marketing. Um, and I think any sales leader, that's absolutely key for their success. So we want to talk about that, but I also want to talk about your, your recent book, Fanocracy. So David, we can start wherever you want. Um, but why don't we, can we talk about your book, Fanocracy? Tell us about how that started sure. and, and tell us about the book. Absolutely. So, um, uh, so I wrote, I've written 12 books uh, and four of those are international bestsellers. I'm probably best known um, uh, over time with a book called The New Rules of Marketing and PR. It sold uh, 400,000 copies in English. It's now in the seventh edition and it's in 29 languages from Albanian to Vietnamese. But over the last um, couple of years, I've started to really feel like some of the ideas I pioneered around social media marketing have really taken a dangerous turn. And that's particularly because the algorithms deployed by companies like Facebook have become truly evil, in my opinion, mm -hmm. because they seed um, conspiracy theories. They drive people into tribes. They um, really are, I believe, a very dangerous thing. So I started to think about what are the things I love and how can I look at marketing and sales as being something other than just um, social media, which I've been focused on for such a long time. And so I was talking to my daughter, Reiko, and I said to Reiko, geez, what is, what is with me and how much of a fan I have of live music? I'm right behind me is my, my, my live music hall of fame. I've been to 804 live shows in my life. I've been to 75 Grateful Dead concerts, which is kind of ridiculous. That's a, um, that's awesome. And, and, and Reiko at the time had just started med school. Um, she's now 27. And at the time, it was about five years ago. She was 22 um, and started med school. And, and she started talking about how much of a fan of Harry Potter she is. Not only read every book multiple times, seen every movie multiple times, but wrote an 85,000 word alternative ending to the Harry Potter series where Draco Malfoy is a spy for the Order of the Phoenix and put that on a fan fiction site that's been downloaded thousands of times. So we were talking about how much of a fan we are of the things we love. And we just decided to collaborate on what became this book, Fanocracy, turning fans into customers and customers into fans because we recognize that one of the best ways for an organization to grow business is not to sell stuff, right. but to build fans of their companies. So we spent five years researching and writing 
And the book came out in um, early 2020. It hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list and I'm super excited about how it came out. And Reiko had since graduated from med school. She's currently an emergency uh, resident at Boston Medical Center. She's treating COVID patients. Uh, And so she's totally on the front lines. Um, But it was cool to write the book with her because obviously a woman, obviously a different generation than me. My wife's Japanese, so she's mixed race and, you know, she loves different things than I do. So having a millennial mixed race woman who loves Harry Potter be a part of the book really added a lot um, to to my middle aged Grateful Dead fandom. (laughs) Yeah. Well, not to mention, I can't think of, you know, as a dad, a better life memory than collaborating on a book with your daughter. How cool is that? It was super cool. Um, You know, we had to really build a different level of trust in our relationship because she had to feel comfortable saying to me, and she did, by the way, you know, this chapter sucks, daddy. (laughs) And, and, and she did that, you know, and so we built a really great working relationship around that. And then I had an opportunity to make one of the, the most fun phone calls of my entire life when, uh, I happened to be at a speaking gig. I was speaking at Tony Robbins Business Mastery event in um, Florida in January of 2020. And um, I, um, I found out that the Wall Street Journal was put us on the bestseller list for that particular week and, you know, had a print copy of the paper in front of me. And so I, I, I texted my daughter and I said, uh, it was early in the morning, it was like six o'clock in the morning. I texted her and I said, when you're up and you've had your tea, text me back. I want to call you. So she did. And I said, congratulations, you are a Wall Street Journal bestselling author. And she's like, whoa, where did that come from? You know, and and she was 26 at the time. So imagine 26 years old and and a Wall Street Journal bestselling author. But she I mean, she was absolutely as important as I was to writing that book. No question about it, because much of her ideas are in there. Right. That's awesome. When I think about some of the things you're saying, and and I have the book and I'm currently reading them, that's my oh, goal is to you. finish this over uh, Christmas. I've got something good to read. Um, to me, when I think about the companies that I love, those are companies that I have a really strong emotional attachment to. I feel like I'm part of something. Right. And that and and it's like almost ingrained. It, it um, is. It's so interesting, isn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and everybody tells me that when we talk about this idea of fandom. Yeah. Um, sure, you could be fans of a rock band like I am or, or an author like Reiko is, but um, you can also be a fan of a company, a product, a service, an idea. Uh, and the companies that recognize that um, can be really successful. And so at the fundamental level, what we learned around this idea of fanocracy Um, this idea of building fans is that all humans, you and me and everybody who's watching or listening in on this, every human is hardwired in our brains to want to be part of a tribe of like-minded people. Because when we're part of a tribe of like-minded people, that's when we're safe and we're secure and we're comfortable. And that goes back tens of thousands of years in human evolution you know, you, you imagine a long, long, long time ago, our ancestors 
you know, running around the, 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 the plains or the deserts or the woods. And we were safe when we were with our tribe. And if we encountered another tribe or we encountered a wild animal, that's when we were unsafe. Well, that's still true today, which is why any organization that can build a tribe of like-minded people becomes super powerful, whether, whether it's the Grateful Dead or JK Rowling with Harry Potter. But, and, and we found examples of all kinds of organizations. One of my favorite is a company called Haggerty. They're an automobile insurance company. And I, I, the reason I love this example is because nearly everybody, when I ask them, hate the idea of auto insurance. People don't like to buy it. Nope. You know, you, you spend whatever, a couple thousand bucks on auto insurance. You, you write the check and it's annoying because it's like you're throwing the money away and you never want to use the product because it meant you crashed your car. What? So um, this company, Haggerty Insurance, specializes in classic car auto insurance. And I spoke a couple of times with McKeel Haggerty, who's the entrepreneurial CEO of the company. He said, David, we can't sell insurance the way everybody else does it. It's not a price thing. It's not about spending more money on ads than everyone else. It's not about our salespeople bugging people by cold calling them. What this is about is we developed a fan base. And so what they do is they go to classic car shows all over the country. And, you know, with COVID, it's a little more difficult, but they go to these classic car shows and they meet people who are fans of classic cars. Uh, and they then have created a database of of, of, of thousands and thousands of different classic car models and what their value is. Because remember their classic car auto insurance company, they know the values that people are insuring their cars for. And then they provide those values as a service to people in the form of this database. They have a YouTube channel with over a million subscribers. They have a driver's club with 650,000 members. And all of these things drive fans. And then people like me, I own a 1973 Land Rover that's been insured by Haggerty for nearly 20 years. When I get that bill, I'm happy to, to write the check right. um, because, um, because I'm a fan. And, and the ultimate test of this fandom is um, even if a company comes along that's cheaper, I won't switch right. because I'm a fan of Haggerty. And so it's, a, it's kind of a different way of selling than most people are used to because it's about building fans first and then those fans become customers and then they become even more of a fan and then they want to stay a customer for the long for the long haul they're the now the largest classic car insurance company in the world double digit growth every year since they started um, they'll add something like 200,000 new customers this year so you yeah. know just absolutely doing a fabulous job yeah they're amazing I, I'm very familiar with them. I'm a big classic auto. Oh, do you, do you have a classic car yourself? I don't. That's one of my ambitions. There um, you go. You got to put it on the list, man. And, and yeah, you know what? Are, It'd be a really good COVID thing to buy. It, you know? it would. Once uh, my kids are out of school, then I'll feel comfortable uh, spending money on that instead of tuition. Uh, oh, yeah. That, there you go. And my daughter's yeah. already out, so I get that. Yeah. Um, one of the things, you know, when you think about Haggerty and companies like them, um, what they've done fundamentally is they've shifted the conversation away from price, away from all these other things. You right. know, they've really put themselves in the shoes of their customers. They absolutely have. And they've recognized 
that you don't always have to, as a salesperson, you don't have to wrestle people to the ground every time. Right. You know, it's not about interrupting them with ads or with cold calls or whatever it is, and then getting them to respond to some inane offer of some kind, and then putting them into your click funnels or your sales um, process, and then trying to get them to the point where they close. I mean, it's a lot better if you can figure out ways to build a tribe, to build a, a group of fans that are eager to do business with you, that want to do business with you yeah. than it is to do the more traditional form of selling that so many people are used to. Oh yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And that's what I love about your book. And to me, what really excites this is that it's not about, oh, like I need to get more clicks or I need to get you know, more subscribers or followers and then I'll be successful. Right. This is right. really putting the focus where it needs to be. And that's really understanding your customer, understanding what their life is like, what they care about. And that goes well beyond just business. Yeah. No, it, it truly does. And, and, you know, one of the things that's difficult for a lot of people to, to use this kind of strategy to grow business is that it takes a little bit of a leap of faith right. because it's not the traditional way that we've sold for many years. Uh, it's a bit more of, uh, it's bit, a bit more of a, um, um, almost a Grateful Dead style form of marketing, because what you're saying is essentially, the more that you give to the universe, the more the universe gives back. Right. And, um, you know, without getting too much into the Northern California airy fairy aspect of this, um, you, it really does require a, a leap of faith that if you provide value in the form of your YouTube channel, if you provide value in the form of, and I'm thinking of Haggerty again here, of, of meeting people at classic car shows and just sharing your love of classic cars, not trying to sell them insurance. Right. Uh, and, and providing for free the database of the values of the cars that you've collected over the many years that you've insured them. Yeah. You know, these kinds of things, if you give them to the universe, those people will say, geez, when I'm ready to insure my car, these people have educated me. These are the ones that I'm going to want to do my insurance with, not some random person um, who cold calls me. Right. And, and, and this is true, I believe, uh, uh, for every business. I mean, we're talking about a you know, an automobile insurance company here, but it's true of B2B software companies. It's true of, of consumer brands. It's true of commodity products. And I'll give you an example in the commodity products. One of my favorite examples, it's a story in our book, is that um, Duracell, the battery company, um, has a program they call Power Forward where they give away free batteries to people in need. And traditionally, Power Forward has focused on natural disaster, hurricane, flood, tornado. And the, when the power goes out, right. they go to that natural disaster area and they give away free batteries to people without power. And it's a fabulous program. They've given away um, tens of millions of batteries over the course of this program, but they, they pivoted it to be helpful during the pandemic especially for first responders, you know, fire and police and EMTs, as well as healthcare. And they've provided free batteries, as well as free charging stations 
um, to first responders and healthcare facilities. They've literally given away over 10 million batteries since the pandemic started and totally free. And what it does is, again, it requires that leap of faith to say, the more batteries we give away, the more people who will be engaged with us, the more people who remember who we are. And then over time, next week, next month, next year, when they're ready to buy batteries, they're more likely to buy Duracell batteries. And it's a way different approach, mm -hmm. but it absolutely positively works. It's a, an approach that talks about building fans first rather than just trying to sell somebody something. Right. So if I'm a sales leader, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking to myself, completely agree with what you're doing, but we might be too far down the road to start down this path or it sounds really intimidating. What do they need to do to start this process to get over that mental block? and get this going? So I don't think it needs to be an either or proposition. Um, I think that what you, what any organization can do is give some thought to, is the way that we're marketing and selling now working fabulously well? And if you can say the way that you're marketing and selling now is working fabulously well, we're crushing it, we're beating our numbers every single quarter, I wouldn't change that. Right. <laughs> you know, if, if, right. if, if, you're, if you're crushing it using cold calls, who am I to say you should change? Right. But the vast majority of people I speak with have found it increasingly difficult to do a great job by spending more money on advertising than the other guy, or by hiring more salespeople to pick up the phone and cold call than the other guy, or by doing the traditional B2B sales model of providing some offer like a free white paper that requires registration to get an email address. And then you take that email address and you start to hit them with emails. And then you, you, you have a way to, to phone them up and say, hey, did you read our white paper? Don't you want to have a phone call with us to, uh, to find out whether we can help you? You know, that approach, again, if it's working, great. I'm not telling you to stop. But the vast majority of people are telling me this, these, these sales playbooks that we used in the past and marketing playbooks we used in the past aren't working. So what I would do in this case is don't try to go cold turkey, but begin building fans now. Begin an approach that is a kinder and gentler approach to what you're doing now to provide things with no expectation of anything in return, to figure out ways that you can build fans, to develop a genuine and true human connection, to develop a tribe of people that come together that want to do business with you. And over time, I would expect that you would be able to start to decrease the amount of traditional sales and marketing you're doing as your ramp up of this approach of building fans starts to take off. Right. And I would imagine the, the payoff, you're really talking, when you build that true fan culture, mm -hmm. it takes out a life of its own at some point. You know, oh, you start yeah. to create that critical mass and then it just explodes. Absolutely it does. It's, it's an amazing thing. And, you know, one of the reasons 
that this whole idea started for me was, and you can see some Grateful Dead stuff behind me. I love is, those. Is that the the great the Grateful Dead, my favorite band? I've seen them seventy five times. I actually wrote a book called Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead together with Brian Halligan, the CEO of HubSpot, and Bill Walton, the NBA Basketball Hall of Famer. The three of us wrote that book. Um, what we recognized was here's a band that gave away their music for free. What they did was they allowed fans to record their concerts. Yeah. So unlike every other band starting in the set 1970s, you know, on the ticket, every other band, it said no recording allowed, um, no, no cameras, no audio recording devices, no video. Um, and of course, this was initially in the era before smartphones. Right. Um, but the Grateful Dead said, why not? Right. If you want to record our music, please do. And they allowed fans to bring, literally, you could bring professional level recording gear. And people brought big old um, tape, tape recorders. Um, and they actually, the band created power strips that you could plug into. You could have a... Um, you could have a microphone stand and they actually created a taper section behind the mixing board. You can have a microphone stand to, to point the microphones up at the speakers. Right. And what this did was, first of all, it was radical that they did it. Nobody else allowed right. this. You know, every other band said no. Um, but then what was res the result of this was initially it was cassette tapes later on MP3 files that people like me then were exposed to the band. I had never heard them before. My, my buddies in college were playing these cassette tapes. I'm like, wow, these guys are good. And then I started to get into it. And then I wanted to go see a show myself. Right. Um, and then I wanted to see another show and another show and another show um, to the point where I've probably spent uh, over $100,000 on the Grateful Dead um, over the past 40 years, um, my first, the first show I saw when I was 17, um, more than 40 years ago. And yeah. I, I haven't gone this year because of COVID, but last year in 2019, I went to um, six um, shows, three of them in Mexico. I traveled to Mexico with my buddies, paid yeah. a lot of money to be on a beach to see the, the dead right. and company, which is the current incarnation. And, and so these ideas have been around for a long time. The idea, alternative ideas to selling and marketing have been around a long time and, um, and they work and they work for all kinds of different organizations. It just requires a big mindset shift. Yeah. I mean, imagine I was thinking about your daughter as you were talking, if J.K. Rowling had got her army of lawyers involved and shut down all these fandom sites right. and where you can't do your fan fiction or you can't put it out there. She's cutting the legs out from all those people that care so passionately about this. And she she supported it. She did the same she did. thing. Absolutely. And now she's got this whole culture. Uh, you see Harry Potter references everywhere, yeah. you know, and and. Yeah. I mean, how foolish she would have been if she would have taken the more aggressive approach and shut that down. It would and that's what most people do. That's what most companies do. Right, like, right. Like, no, that's my intellectual property. You can't steal it. Right. Um, and, and there is another way. That's not the only way. The legal, the legal approach to business is not the only approach to business. Right. Um, you can also do a different approach. And I think especially now that this is a great approach because 
you know, we all need some more humanity in our, in our lives. And when, you know, as we're recording this, um, we're in the thick of, of, of the pandemic. And when you can't meet people in person, the idea of figuring out ways to meet them uh, and on a human level in so many ways is great for all kinds of companies. And as soon as you start to put your lawyer on the case, that's a very, very different way of doing business. Oh yeah, you immediately become antagonistic. Yeah. And you know, I was thinking about like the auto industry, you think about your relationship with your, your, uh, your auto insurer, it's an, by nature antagonistic relationship. And Haggerty yeah. completely flipped that on its head. Yep, absolutely. And just, and, and my favorite, I, I just love that example because it is a business everyone hates. People don't like right. to buy auto insurance. They don't like to use auto insurance. They don't like to even think about auto insurance. Right. Yet here's a company that's built millions of fans in the auto insurance business. Yeah, because they've demonstrated very clearly we're as passionate about this stuff as you are, and we're going to help you. We're going to we're going to help you. We're going to make it easier for you to enjoy your passion. Right. That's exactly right. Exactly right. And you know, sometimes people push back on me and they say, "David, I can't do this because I'm a." And then they 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 give an excuse. You know, B two B company, enterprise software company, right. nonprofit, government agency. I mean, and but but the truth is, we found examples in all kinds of different marketplaces of people who've been able to build fans. And one of the most surprising things that Reiko and I learned as we started to do this research, and this is true of everyone who's selling today, um, is that if you bring passion to what you do, passion is infectious and people are more likely to wanna to do business with you. And we saw this again and again and again. And this was the most surprising thing that we came across. People are more likely to do business with a salesperson who has passion for what they do, but also a salesperson who has passionate, passion for things in their pre professional lives and they don't, um, they don't allow those to be separate. They actually bring those things together. Right. Um, you know, if you look on the typical salesperson's LinkedIn, it's, it's written in the third person. It's, you know, John Smith is a, um, uh, is a sales professional who always makes quota. It's like, it's the worst thing you can possibly say. Uh, if you say, hey, I'm John and I love to surf. I also happen to be a great, um, a, a great way that you can um, engage to learn more about this business that I'm a really strong and passionate about. You know, it's not about being a salesperson on LinkedIn. It's not about that you're, I've made quota for the last 48 quarters in a row. Yeah. It's the last thing that, is, that, that, that a potential customer wants to read when they go to your LinkedIn. They want to read... Right that you're passionate about life, that you're passionate about the company you work for. And, and we saw this again and again and again. I'll give you a concrete example. Um, uh, I mentioned earlier, I speak at Tony Robbins Business Mastery events around the world. I was speaking at one in um, Las Vegas, uh, I think it was two years ago. And I was speaking about this idea of fandom. And uh, I was approached after my talk by a dentist, his name is John Marashi. And Dr. Marashi said to me, David, I'm a dentist. 
I don't have fans. <laughs> and I said, well, let's talk about that, Dr. Marashi. I said, what are you passionate about? And he goes, oh my God, I love to skateboard. Skateboarding is my life. I am so passionate about skateboarding. He, he, he came alive right. when he started to right. talk about skateboarding. And I said, Dr. Marashi, you need to focus on skateboarding in your dental practice. Yeah. And, and it was a 10 minute conversation. And about six months later, he contacted me, he goes, David, I just wanted to get back to you. I've taken your advice and I have integrated my love of skateboarding with my dental practice. So here's what he did uh, on the walls physically in his practice. He has skateboards on the wall rather than artwork or, or you know, his degrees right. like most people have. He's got skateboards. Right. He skateboards from one examination room to another examination room. Um, on his practice's website, he has pictures of him skateboarding and videos of him skateboarding. Uh, he had created an Instagram. It now has, last time I checked, something like 15,000 followers, a dentist with 15,000 yeah. followers on his Instagram. And many of the photos and videos are him skateboarding. Right. And um, he contacted me again about six months after he called to tell me that he had done this. And he said, I've got the data. And the data is that um, something like 30% of his new patients cited the fact that he's the skateboarding dentist right. for, why they, for why they signed up with his practice. And he says that's been responsible for 23% uh, new revenue over and above everything else, yep. simply by sharing what he's passionate about. But what I see with the vast majority of salespeople is that if you were to look on their LinkedIn, it's like all sales all the time, all yep. business all the time. You don't know who they are as a person. Um, if you meet them, you don't know who they are as a person. Um, and instead, you know, hey, I love the Grateful Dead. I'm cool with that. My daughter loves Harry Potter. Dr. Marashi loves skateboarding. Both of us share a love for classic cars. And that, that brings a salesperson alive. So this idea of passion really became important. So, you know, for sales leaders who are listening in on this conversation, I would encourage you to think about how you can bring that passion in. And I'm going to provide one more example. I mentioned my daughter, Reiko, my co-author in the Arwa book, Fanocracy, is now um, working in emergency medicine. She's a doctor at Boston Medical Center. And, you know, she said, it, it's brutal. You know, I'm dealing with COVID patients or patients who come in for something else. Yeah. We have to assume they have COVID. Um, we're wearing PPE head to toe. You know, we've got a hair, something covering our hair, something covering our mouth and our nose. We've got um, a protective shield. We've got our, 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 our um, you know, the, the, the clothing that we wear to protect ourselves. We look like a robot when we're coming in to talk to a patient. Yeah. So, what, so what we do is we put something personal, something we're passionate about. Um, as part of the clothing that we're wearing. So um, she, for example, might wear a Boston Bruins mask as opposed to just a mask. Some people wear tie-dyed um, hair uh, covering. Other people, um, which my daughter does, she wears a Black Lives Matter pin and she wears a rainbow pin. And she said when, when she walks in to see a patient, 
and she's wearing a Boston Bruins mask and a rainbow pin and Black Lives Matter pin, her patients come alive because she's sharing something that they're passionate about. So rather than some automatron MD who looks like a robot because of all this PPE they're wearing, she all of a sudden comes in and, and she's created a bond with this patient who's scared, who's yeah. worried about possibly dying from, from either a horrible disease or an accident or whatever the reason they came into the emergency room for. Yeah. Um, and so, and, 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 you know, Dr. Marashi and my daughter, who's a doctor, um, those are healthcare related, but this is true of everybody. It's yeah. true of every salesperson. So I recommend to sales uh, leaders who are listening in to think about how you can have your salespeople's personalities shine through. What are they passionate about? How can that shine through? How can the passion that they have for the company shine through? So they're not just someone who's trying to wrestle you to the ground and take your money out of your wallet. Yeah. She went, your daughter, that's amazing. She went from what is of incredibly clinical perspective or, or, you know, being viewed as incredibly clinical to now she's a human. She's a person yeah, walking. That's in right. Yeah. It makes a huge, huge difference. Yeah. Um, she, she's not doing it, but what a lot of people have been doing is they have a, um, a large um, pin made with their photograph on it. So right. that a patient can see what they look like if their mask is off, right. you know, just things like that, that humanize you. Yep. So, you know, as a salesperson or as a sales leader, how can you humanize the way that you're selling? Right. We've gone over our time, but I'm totally great with that. If you have some more time, I'd like to talk about CRM for a bit. Yeah, let's, let's spend a couple of minutes on that. Sure. You have a tremendous background because of marketing with CRM. Um, there's a lot of companies that we deal with. We see a lot of the same things over and over again, where companies go and they think CRM is going to solve all their problems. Yeah. Once we implement CRM, we're going to have perfect sales process, perfect whatever. Right, right. What advice do you have for sales leaders that are dealing with CRM issues? The biggest thing that I see as a problem with CRM is big picture problem is that um, most of the ways that CRM is built, whether it's hard coded into the system or whether it's the way it gets built through the sales process, is that it's a traditional sales process that gets built in. And I see a huge problem with that. And I, I see it as actually going back several decades to very, very early client server CRM products, mm -hmm. where at that time there was one way to sell, you know, you, you had the sales funnel, you know, and you get the lead at the top and then the lead at a certain point gets passed over the shoulder to the salesperson from the marketing team. And then you have the, the, you try to get the meeting. And then when the meeting, you try to get them to agree to a proposal. And then you try to get them uh, to agree um, to the pilot. And then, you know, the sales pro a funnel is clearly defined from the seller's perspective. Um, and it's defined from the seller's perspective from ancient history, you know, 1950s, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but let's say 1980s selling process or 1990s selling process, because that's when the sales leader that helps to set these things up, or that's when the company that created the, the um, CRM to begin with set them up so that they're inherently flawed. 
because they're not truly about building fans. They're not truly about um, creating the kinds of relationships um, that can be valuable. And one of the biggest problems I see um, to make it more this uh, this concept more clear is that a lot of CRM systems will credit the first point of contact, and will also credit the point the last point of contact before sale is made in ways that cause the marketing team and the sales team to be out of alignment um, in terms of the ways that they um, that they engage with potential and existing customers. And what I mean by that is, if you have a CRM system where um, it's talking, there, one of the touch points is there's a white paper that's offered. And that that white paper, if somebody pushes the button and fills out the form, and then they see that there's a, um, uh, that, that email address is finally given, right. that then the marketing team and the sales team and says, when that lead closes, the reason that it closed is because we built this fabulous white paper that got them to fill out the form which gives you incredibly false data because the truth is by the time they push that button, they've already done a ton of research. They've searched on Google. They might've gone to various um, rating sites to find out about you. They've checked out who is the CEO of the company on LinkedIn. Um, they've poked all over your website and finally they fill out a form that shouldn't be given overdue credit. What you really need the CRM system to do is to understand what are all the touch points? What are all the places that that um, potential customer has visited? And then give some of those credit as well. I was talking to um, a, a CEO of a, of a company um, uh, recently, and he said, David, we learned something remarkable when we dug in deep to the data on our website. And what we learned is that 20% of our new business had at one point or another looked at my bio on my company's website. Now that's a remarkable statistic that 20% that 20 of people who signed a contract at one point or another went to the, the about page, clicked the management team page, clicked on the CEO's bio and read it. And until you actually start to figure that out, you're gonna create false data for why something happened. Right. And I don't know of any CRM systems that are gonna give credit to the CEO's bio is one of the right. reasons why a deal closed. And, yeah. and, and that causes the marketing team to focus on the wrong thing. It's all about getting those, um, the, 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 the point of contact where they fill out the form causes the salesperson to focus on the wrong things. So I think the biggest problem is that um, these systems are focused on old ways of selling, not new ways of selling. Right, and that reinforces your whole point about the book, Fanocracy, that yeah. those people that are hunting around your website and they're reading the bio, they're trying to make that emotional connection. They're Absolutely. trying to say, are these people, are, are we the same? Are we aligned? Are, are they, are they going to help me? You know, yes. are these people I can trust to help me? Yes. And that's what they're looking for. Absolutely. And, and just a little thing on the CEO bio. Yeah. I tell this to all CEOs, make, do two things with your bio. No CEOs do this unless I tell them to, but number one, write in first person. 
CEOs don't do that. They're all written in third person. Uh, and number two, inject conflict into your bio. No, no CEO does that either. Have conflict and say, I was thinking about becoming a doctor. I mean, I'm just making this up out of right. the top of my head, right. but I was thinking about becoming a doctor. You know, I went to, I did pre-med in, in college. I, I took the um, MCATs and I was just about to go to medical school, but then I had a huge fight with my father and I decided the hell with it. I'm gonna to go to Asia and live there for two years. I came back and I started this company and we've been growing and um, you know, he's just like, whoa, where did that come from? But all of a sudden you realize this is a human being right. um, and, the re and because it was written in first person, because there was conflict introduced, um, the reader is like, drawn in like a movie to what is this person talking about? Right. Um, and, and that's super, super interesting stuff. That is, that's fascinating. Well, this has been incredible. I, I, uh, my excitement has been uh, fulfilled, I guess, oh, uh, being able to meet you and talk with you. This has been absolutely amazing. Um, Thank you again for being on the, the podcast. If people want to reach out and connect with you uh, also, let's, Click the book, where can they get your book? So Fanocracy, Turning Fans into Customers and Customers into Fans. Um, Reiko and I built a, a cool website at www.fanocracy.com. Um, on that website, you'll see some of the stories uh, that we've talked about today and some other stories, or a few videos on there. Um, it'll point to places you can buy, but it's all over. Yep. Um, if you're an audiobook person, we read it ourselves. Reiko and I read I it ourselves. That. Um, um, which was fun, um, going to the studio together and doing that. Um, on social media, most of the platforms, I am DM Scott, D-M-S-C-O-T-T. And I use my middle name, Meerman, professionally, so that if you were to go to Google and type in David Meerman Scott, you will get me, because I'm the only person in the world with that name. Yep, that's smart. That's a marketer. There you go. <laughs> Well, I, well, my name is David Scott, and there were a lot of David Scotts when I, uh, when I, when I first started checking it out more than twenty years ago. So my very first website that I made more than twenty years ago, I realized I had to do something different. So I started using my middle name professionally. Yeah. I can't do anything with Christopher Smith. I mean, it's that is gonna. You are you are that is not good um, no. unless, unless you become the most famous Christopher Smith. That's my ambition. There you go. <laughs> well, thank you again for being on Sales Lead, Doug. My pleasure. It's really great to be here. Thanks so much. As we end this discussion on Sales Lead, Doug, be sure to subscribe to catch all our episodes. On social media, follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Watch the videos on YouTube. And you can also find our episodes on our website at impellercrm.com forward slash sales lead dog. Sales Lead Dog is supported by Impeller CRM, delivering objectively better CRM for business, guaranteed.